In a time where parents have the weight of a thousand decisions on their shoulders and every step is like walking in quicksand, adventure's probably not in your focus. However, research shows families who adventure are more resilient and have significantly healthier minds and bodies. The purpose of this podcast is to help families connect through simple and authentic adventure experiences. Welcome to Ordinary Sherpa, your online community designed to help you connect, reach your summit, and create meaningful adventure experiences with your family. Welcome back to another episode of Ordinary Sherpa. I'm your host, Heidi Dusik. This summer has been a fascinating journey in continuing to live out this adventurous lifestyle with kids. We spent 30 days, actually over 30 days, living in an RV. We crossed the Canadian border, which I need to help everyone with this because I could not find the resources online. Anyway, we crossed the Canadian border. We spent a majority of our first half in the Banff Jasper area along the Canadian Rockies. And then we made our way down into Idaho, Montana, and Wyoming before we spent some time in the Black Hills of South Dakota. But our purpose for this experiment was to consider what is this like to slow down? Our whole intention was like, can we live slower? Can, not necessarily, I know we can't slow down time, but how can we be more intentional about every single day that we have together? And treat this entire experience less like a vacation and more like a lifestyle filled with simple adventures. And so it was fascinating. I will have much more information on upcoming episodes. And if actually, if you're in my email list, which you might want to just subscribe anyway, you get a little dose of adventure in your inbox. I say each week, but it's really more like each month these days. But if you're intrigued about RV life and you want to hear more about it, you also might want to join me at the RV Entrepreneurs Summit in September in Colorado. I'm going to include a link in the show notes. The theme for the summit is connection through community. I'm also really stoked that they have limited tickets available. So it's a very small, intimate experience. So you can connect deeper with less people. You know, I think it's much more conducive to actually building community and getting to know each other. So I'm really excited and I would love to see you there. If you're even interested in RV life or starting a side hustle or even just how to manage remote lifestyle, you really might want to consider attending. So that's my little plug. If you want to see me, I may mention it again, but I'd encourage you to sign up. And again, tickets, I'll put a link to register in the show notes. I am so excited for this episode. When I was launching my book, which again is Beyond Normal, A Field Guide to Embrace Adventure, Explore the Wilderness, and Design an Extraordinary Life with Kids, I reached out to Doc G and he was extremely generous, very open, very supportive, and, you know, just demonstrates the Sherpa philosophy. So it's always an honor to have a conversation with him. But I also was really excited because even mid-stride, you know, as I was reading his book and he was reading mine, I was like, wait, I think our purpose behind writing these books is actually very similar. Partway through the book, I messaged him and I was like, I think we both are trying to help people cultivate a meaningful life, but the way we get there is very different. So I think this conversation is even going to be more exciting. Jordan spent the latter part of his career with patients during their end of life. His interest in becoming a doctor was really ignited when his father passed away unexpectedly in the prime of his life. After years of rotations and various practices, burnout, and financial independence, he settled into the specialty of hospice care. Doc G, whom you may have heard in episode 20, Opting Out, is back as Jordan Grummet and his new book, Taking Stock a doctor's advice on financial independence, building wealth, and living a regret-free life. Doc, it is such an honor and a privilege to have you here. Welcome back to Ordinary Sherpa. 
It is so cool to be here with you again. Yeah. First off, I was just saying, I'm having a really hard time calling you Jordan because back in episode 20, when I had you on last with opting out, which I'll link in the show notes here, we referred to you as Doc G. And so I'm just kind of curious. Let's talk about the evolution and revealing of your name. What has kind of emerged in the last year? So from the beginning, I actually had thought of using my real name, but I was talking about sensitive financial issues and I was going into the exact numbers on some of the things about our finances and my wife and I talked about it and we said, you know what, maybe it's just easy to keep things anonymous so that she doesn't have to worry about people from work, learning about her financials, those kind of things. So that's what we did. But as time has gone on and I've become part of the personal finance community, most people got to know me by my real name, which is Jordan. And then, of course, I decided to write a book. And so I didn't want to do the book anonymously. I wanted to put my name in front of my words. So I decided it was time to reveal my real name. And of course, no one really cares. (laughs) You know, we make a big deal of it. But the truth of the matter is it's a little odd because people are like, oh, you have a name. But besides that, you know, it's very natural and uh, people call me Doc anyway. So they can call me Jordan, they can call me Doc. But at least I think now when people see the book in the future, they'll know who I am and connect Doc G with Jordan Grummet. Awesome. Yeah. Are you using both as you go forward? Yes. What I like to say is I think people know me as both and either is fine. And, and some people have started calling me Jordan more often because I think that's more comfortable with them and other people just stick with Doc and and both are fine for me. Let's talk about your book. I really enjoyed your book. And I think about a third of the way through, I messaged you and said, oh my gosh, I think we have a really interesting message or we share an interesting message around joy, but the way we get there is really different. And so I kind of want to go back, you know, you and I approach things differently and yet we end up with similar hypothesis. And so I have actually, I have recorded 89 notations, things I've highlighted (laughs) while reading your book. And I'm not going to get to all 89 of them, obviously, but there definitely are a few that I would love to talk about. And I just want to start maybe with YOLO and this whole concept of YOLO. I am generally more a spontaneous person. And I always have said I'm YOLO, but like with a plan. And I like to talk about my mid-20s as, you know, that was my year of yes, when I was doing a lot of things and questioning the status quo and really falling in love with life. Talk to me, though, through what was your mid-20s like and how did your path kind of, how did you get to YOLO or did you even get to YOLO in the process? So I am a study in deferred gratification, right? I passed the marshmallow test, you know, hands down, you know, you offer me one marshmallow now or two marshmallows later. If I wait a few minutes and I'm patient, I will wait the few minutes. I grew up wanting to be a doctor and that was all about putting the time in and doing the hard work. Throughout childhood, I was constantly thinking about the future and planning for it. And so when I got to be an adult and I started thinking about my finances, it was really the same thing, right? It was, let's put money away. Let's put it in the stock market. Let's let it compound. Let's build a career. Let's start side hustles, maybe some entrepreneurship. It wasn't about what I could do now. It was all about what that would give me the power to do. And so I built up a financial framework and eventually became financially independent. I had built up all this fuel for my rocket so that when it was time, that rocket could take off and sustain itself. And that was very much who I was as a person. But something happened to me. As I progressed in my career, I started taking care of people at the end of life. I started doing hospice care. And it made me realize how fragile life is and how we can spend 
all of our years deferring our gratification and putting things off that we want to do because we're planning for the future. And A, that future may never be there. And B, you know, sometimes it's just fun to eat the marshmallow and say, <laughs> forget about getting the two later. Like sometimes part of the magic and joy of life is jumping in head first, spending money, having an experience, being frivolous. I think I was so caught up in this idea that having a certain amount of money or net worth was a goal that I forgot that the real goal is actually to find joy and happiness. And I think you would say adventure. Mm -hmm. And sometimes to do that, we have to spend money. And seeing my patients figure what was important for them in their last six months of life, none of them said, I wish I had saved more money. None of them said, I wish I had worked more nights and weekends or accrued a higher net worth. A lot of the times it was like, man, I wish I just took that trip 10 years ago when I had the chance and when I felt good. But no, I was too worried about spending the money or I was too worried about having enough time. I didn't like the idea of YOLO, you only live once until I realized that you do only live once. And, you know, life tomorrow, next week or next month isn't guaranteed. You think I would know this. My father died when I was seven years old. He was 40. Like he didn't have a 50s, 60s, or 70s. Thank God, looking back, my dad did a lot of YOLO. Like he pursued things that he enjoyed. He was always taking classes and building things and having experiences. And I think deep down in the back of his mind, he had always thought he was going to die young. So he didn't worry about saving money for for retirement. Right? He had life insurance, which ended up serving us very well. But I don't think he ever thought about saving or investing money very much. He thought about living his life for today. And in his case, that was completely appropriate because he died at 40. So how could I say bad things about YOLO after seeing what I've seen? It's really opened my eyes and given me a softer approach and realized that, you know, we have a spectrum. On one side, we have deferred gratification. On the other side, we have YOLO. And part of our job as human beings is trying to use both of those as tools to bring us those joys in life or to have those adventures. And I think that's what I really learned by dealing with the dying. Yeah. Thank you for that. And I'm going to, we're going to dive into that a lot more because I think that, that you uh, really pull that out throughout your story and throughout the book. I want to talk about a quote actually that you had in your book is I wish I had the courage to live a life true to myself and not what others expected me. As you look back now, and I don't know how old you are, you're in the forties, right? Yes. I'm 48. Okay. So looking back now, do you feel like you made a lot of sacrifices and that you would do things differently today if you didn't have those same expectations? So I answer this as yes and no, and I know that's not satisfying, but let me explain. First and foremost, that is one of Bronnie Ware's five regrets of the dying. So Bronnie Ware was a hospice and palliative care nurse, and she interviewed people at the end of life and chronically ill and came up with these five regrets that people tend to have about their lives. And that was one of them. You know, I look at my life, I became a doctor partially, I think, because my father died and I was seven. And at that time, I worshipped him and wanted to be just like him, partially because that was just always the thing I identified with. But it never sat really comfortably with me. I remember I would go into the doctor's lounge and feel uncomfortable. I didn't have a lot of doctor friends but yet I still kept on clinging to that as my purpose and identity in the world. I remember my first week of medical school, I volunteered as a hospice volunteer. The first patient I ever saw was a hospice patient. 
And that spoke to my soul. But instead of embracing that, instead of having the courage to say, aha, this I've caught on to, this feels good and right. I finished my medical education. I went to general internal medicine, which is a very different thing, taking care of adults in hospitals and nursing homes and in the offices. And it was only as I got older and got my financial bearings that I realized that the things I was doing in medicine were no longer filling my soul. And I started getting rid of those things, what I call the art of subtraction. I got rid of working in a clinic because I didn't like it. And then I got rid of working in the nursing home because the hours were crazy and I was getting calls in the middle of the night. What I was left with was hospice. The one thing I would have done, even if you weren't paying me for it because I enjoyed it that much. And I kind of shake my head now and realize that was also the first thing I did in medicine. And yet I didn't have the courage to embrace it at that time. It took me decades to come back and do what I actually love doing. So in some ways, I wish I had the courage to think about my sense of purpose and identity and who I really wanted to be at a much younger age when I could have started being who I wanted to be in my 20s, and then I could have always figured out the finances later and built a financial framework and structure around my purpose and identity. But instead, I did it a little bit backwards. I kind of built the financial framework and then came back and tried to figure out who I am and what's important to me. Now, would I do it differently? That's a tough question because I feel like we do things in the order we do them because we have to. And so our minds evolve. So you can't get to the end of the race at the beginning. Sometimes you have to run that race and feel what you feel and make the decisions you make to realize that the end that you got to was the right end for you. So I can look as a 48-year-old and say, doing part-time hospice work, being a podcaster, being a personal finance person, doing public speaking, all of those things fit me very well now as a 48-year-old. I don't know if they would have fit me as a 20-something-year-old. I don't know if I could have made a living doing those things. Maybe I would be less passionate about them if I had started there. So I wish I was a little bit more courageous about being more thoughtful about who I am when I was at the beginning, especially of my career journey. But I like where it's landed me in the end. Yeah. It seems you have learned a lot. I mean, your whole book is really reflective about death and dying and all that you have learned really from hospice. So I appreciate the fact that you... You recognize, you know, that you could have started there and, and maybe you should have. I don't like to should on people, but that was an opportunity that you saw great joy from. And I what I really appreciate is, you know, much like in the personal finance space where we're making the space to talk about money because a lot of people find it really uncomfortable and we just don't talk about these things. Right. Those are private things that we don't often share. And I think we're breaking through that. But yet I see the same conversations not being had around death and dying. Do you see this book as being an opportunity to have the conversation around death and dying and what people's wishes are long before they need to have that conversation? Oh, most definitely. I mean, I say in the book a few times, we're dying from the day that we're born, but we don't really like to consider that. I mean, death is something we don't want to think about. And part of the reason I think is because it means that we have a finite amount of time left to do the things that are really important for us. And so we start thinking about, okay, what does feel purposeful? What do I want my identity to be? What is meaningful? What do I want my legacy to be? Those are big, scary, difficult thoughts. And they remind of us our mortality because we know that there's a limited amount of time and we're either going to succeed or fail at those things. So we do something that feels very reasonable. We start concentrating on the less important stuff because it's a lot less scary. For me, that was money. I mean, 
it was much easier to think about making money or getting to a net worth or even thinking about things like financial independence because they were low-hanging fruit. They were easy, maybe difficult to achieve, but at least the thought process was easy. I can either make more money, I can save more, I can side hustle, I can invest. There were easy answers there. Mm -hmm. And it was much easier for me to think about those things than to think about who do I want to be? What do I want my legacy to be? When I unfortunately am that guy who's getting a terminal diagnosis and meeting with the hospice team, what am I going to regret that I didn't do? What am I going to want to achieve in those last three months or six months that I find I have left? And I guess most importantly, why am I waiting until a death sentence to think about them? Why aren't I thinking about this when I'm 20 and 30 and 40? So I think these conversations are very intertwined. We don't like to talk about money. We don't like to talk about death. And yet, being in the unique situation that I'm in, I've found that both conversations are very necessary and intertwined to figuring out who we want to be today. Yeah. I appreciate this conversation. I work in philanthropy, which is essentially... I actually don't talk about this much on the show, but it's relevant to what we're talking about, where I work alongside donors who have net worth that they're trying to figure out what to do with and what they want their legacy to be. And so many of them say, well, after I'm gone, I'm going to do this. And it's been fun for me to walk alongside them and say, why don't you do this when you're alive? Like making money is sometimes fun, but what you do with your money is way more fun. (laughs) You know, whether you spend it on yourself or you give it to your community, seeing the results of that work is also equally as joyful for some. You know, we've seen a lot of joy in volunteering and giving back as well. I think the conversation around death sometimes feels scary, but it doesn't have to be. One of the things I've done over the last, I think, couple of years, I don't know, was to write my own eulogy as part of the process of like, what do I actually want my legacy to be? How do I want people to describe me? And that's a pretty eye-opening experience, you know, exercise, I would say, in figuring that out. You give a lot of practical examples such as that in the book. Why did you feel that was necessary? What were the things that helped you, I guess, get to the point where you are today? I love this idea of writing your own eulogy. And the reason why is I think all of us need like a great clarifier. Like I get asked so often when I talk about this book, well, how do I know what my purpose is? And I think that's really difficult. What is my purpose and who am I? What is my identity? I think answering that question takes some really deep thought. And in this case, an exercise like writing your eulogy or an exercise that I have in my book in the first chapter about what would you do if you got a death sentence today and had six months to live? What are the kind of things you would regret or what were the kind of things you would try to achieve in those six months? It forces us to clarify what is truly and deeply important to us. And I think very few other things can do that so succinctly. And so I think we have to start trying to figure out how to analyze what we really feel our purpose is, what we want our legacy to be. And I think we have to try to figure out how to know those kind of things now as young people. Mm-hmm. And so I, I really like those type of exercises. I think they really do some great things for our thought process when it comes to who we want to be. Yeah. The clarity piece, I think, is really important, you know, seeking clarity. And we don't always know those things. Sometimes I think those questions are thrust upon us, maybe by our children. I recall a, a conversation you were having with your daughter where she was really 
intrigued with death. And I don't I don't know that I want to reveal that because it was for me, it was a very pivotal point in the book. But maybe highlight some points where your children have maybe caught you off guard or questioned you or what you were working on that may have also brought you back and offered more clarity on where you were headed in life. Well, my poor kids, <laughs> they grew up with a father who dealt with end of life all the time. Because even before I did hospice and palliative care, I took care of nursing home patients and hospital patients. So pretty much they've been hearing me talk about death from the time they were little children. We'd be in the car and I'd get a phone call and I'd be on with the nursing home or talking to a family member saying, basically, your family member is dying. They have this many you know, hours left. We're going to make them comfortable. It's time for you to go to the nursing home. Those kind of conversations. So they've got this strange window into life. But the other side of that is having children has profoundly affected me in the way I think about and look at kind of my goals and my legacy. There's nothing like watching your children grow and blossom. One of the anecdotes in the book is about when my daughter started asking me about death. And um, another clarifier is, so doing the your own eulogy is one. Another is when you have to explain to your children who are incredibly good at asking questions, especially when they're young and uninhibited, trying to explain to them why you do what you do. Why are you going to work? Why are you worried about money? You know, why do you have to work on the weekend? Why do you have to work at nights? How come you couldn't come to the baseball game? Like those are also great clarifiers that help you start identifying what's really important for you as a person. And they let you look at life through that kid's view. And sometimes we get so complicated as adults, we have such complicated reasons for why we do what we do. Sometimes we forget that our main goal is kind of that joy and that connection with the people around us. So, you know, having kids has definitely helped me see through some of the haze that we create that gets in the way of deciding what we really want. Yeah. And I always love the idea of like, I have to explain it to a five-year-old. How do I take this really complicated, you know, philosophical conversation that we're having and explain it to a five-year-old? That can be tricky too sometimes. So yeah, they do simplify life sometimes and help us gain clarity. I want to switch gears just a little bit and talk about time. Because I think that's one of the key themes throughout the book as well is this notion of what if time were limited? And it obviously we all have the same amount of time every single day. And what we do with that time is really up to us. You talk a little bit about some of the research actually around how people use their time, some resources to think about your time differently, such as activity hacking and things of that nature. Can you help me define, like, what did you discover in this process, even in writing this book and defining some clarity around time that can offer my audience some insights into, like, how do they think about their time differently? So, you know, a big point of the book and something I thought a lot about is we kind of make this mistake, especially in the personal finance world, of thinking we can commoditize time. And, and you hear it in the way we speak, you know. Mm -hmm. We talk about buying and selling time. We talk about exchanging things for time. The truth of the matter is time is static and it's uncontrollable and it's unchangeable. So time passes no matter what we do. So I think we have to change the conversation. 
it's not about gaining or losing time because that's impossible. It's really about what we choose to fill our time with. So that's really it. We can control what we fill our time with, how we use our energy and our money and our abilities to fill that time with things we like doing. And then we can also think a little bit about how we experience time, right? So we experience time differently at different times of our life. So when we're kids, time seems to be forever. You know, mm -hmm. you get done with school and you have the summer off and that feels like years of summer. On the other hand, you know, you're 48 years old and it's like one moment your kid was 12 and now they're 18 and graduating college and it seems like it has flown past you. Another example is I always tell people, you know, sit and watch TV and hit your watch and record two minutes and then think about what that felt like and then go and put yourself in the plank position, <laughs> hit your yeah. watch and wait two minutes and see what that feels like. And you'll notice that we perceive time differently at different times of our life. So we can do two things, right? We can control what activities we do during time and how we perceive it. And that's it. And so I think that should really be our goal because we all want to perceive that we have more time. We all want to think and feel that we have time abundance and not time scarcity. The truth is we have what we have, but how do we perceive it like it's abundance? And again, that means that we are very thoughtful about how we fill that time. And our job is something we spend a lot of time doing in our lives. Like a large number of hours are taken up being at work. So a simple thing is how can we make our work be reasonable? How can we make our work be something that we like to do that at least gives us enough joy that we feel like it's time well spent. And when we work and we make money, that money is potential energy. How can we use that potential energy to erase doing things we don't want to do? Yeah. Like maybe I like work, but I don't love work. Is it worth me working one extra hour to make an extra 50 or $100 so that then I can pay someone to do my lawn because I really hate doing my lawn? Yes, to me it is. <laughs> I would rather do something that I like but don't love for an hour because that'll keep me from doing something I hate for an hour. So it really becomes the calculus of using your time in such a way that feels best for you. And that's kind of the goal. Yeah. I also think you highlighted something in the book that was very resonant with me. You know, we often, the things we don't like to do, we spend way more time on them, thinking about them and worrying about them and <laughs> fretting about how much we don't want to do something. And yet I get asked all the time, like, how do you find time to do it? I'm like, well, it really only takes me five minutes to get my butt outside. It doesn't actually take that long to go outside and spend an hour with my kids. But yet sometimes I make it hard and then I waste time or I use time potentially in the wrong way. So I also think when you find joy, it doesn't always, like you said, the perception of time, whether I'm in a plank position and doing something miserable <laughs> to me, that'd be miserable. <laughs> yes, that is miserable. <laughs> or uh, doing something fun. You know, time goes a lot faster when you're having fun. So I try to seek the fun and see where we can find opportunities like that. And, and you don't always need six hours. I, I think there's this myth that when I retire, I'm going to have more time. But really, you just fill that time with other stuff. And you have to be intentional about filling it with the things you want to be doing. And interestingly enough, the studies show that we have a decent amount of free time. Mm -hmm. 
I mean, modern day man has all these appliances and things that make life much easier than it was thousands of years ago. Like you put things in the dishwasher, you, you know, you put things in the laundry, like all of these things you used to have to do by hand. We spend lots of time surfing the internet and lots of time watching TV. I think the average person actually has enough time in their day. Now, I guess you could question whether they have enough energy to use that time in a way that they want to. That's a whole nother question. But I don't think we actually have time scarcity in the end. I think when you look at the studies that people have hours and hours of free time to do as they wish most days. So when you take money and time kind of out of the equation, have you found other forms of capital that really do bring you joy? You know, I'm I've talked a little bit about this, but I'm discovering things like social capital, you know, obviously in the midst of a pandemic and and human connection has obviously been back on my list of like, I need social capital back in my life because I probably didn't value it enough or well-being capital or health capital. You know, have you found other forms of capital to consider in your eh, joy-filled life? I mean, I think that I think time capital and money capital are actually the least important. I mean, I think it's everything else. It's what do we do that fills us up? And for some people, that is going to be social capital. For some people, that's going to be mindfulness or well-being. For some people, that's going to be exercise, right? Just the physiologic endorphin-induced good feelings they have. I mean, you know, I think you could parse it out into all sorts of different layers and types of capital, but I think we actually have to get the money part right specifically so that we can erase it from the framework so that we can start thinking about everything else. And I think the time capital issue becomes less when we learn how to perceive it as abundant, if that makes sense. Yeah, that does make sense. I appreciate it. We've been talking about your book and I want to give you a chance to talk about it more explicitly. Just share more with my audience. You know, when does the book come out? How can they find it? Is there anything you want to reveal about the book with my audience as we're talking about it now? So the book is called Taking Stock, a Hospice Doctor's Advice on Financial Independence, Building Wealth, and Living a Regret-Free Life. It comes out August 2nd. It's going to be available for pre-sales in July. It's pretty much what I, as a hospice doctor, have learned about money and life. I like to look at it as a mix of Vicki Robbins' Your Money and Your Life and Bronnie Ware's The Five Regrets of the Dying. So it pretty much connects to this framework of how we figure out who and what we want to be in life, how we then get our money in order in such a way to allow that. And last but not least, asks a really important question that's going to change how we think about money, which is, do we think we're going to die too soon and not be able to enjoy the money we've accrued? Or do we think we're going to live long and worry about running out of money? You have to kind of fundamentally ask yourself that question because it's going to change how you look at everything else. And I'll give you a perfect example. And I think we talked about this a little before. My father felt like he was going to die young. He told my mom when they got married that he felt he was going to die way before his time. Because of that, he really had a little bit more of that YOLO lifestyle. He really lived life to its fullest. Saving money was not at the top of his mind, which made sense, right? Because he didn't think he was going to live a long time. He didn't have to necessarily save for a huge retirement because that was not going to be his lifestyle. 
I'm the exact opposite. I felt from a young age that I was going to live to an old age. So to me, I wasn't as worried about grabbing each and every experience, especially as a young person. I was much more concentrated on building a stable financial framework for retirement because I foresaw that I would have lots of years in the future. So why is this important? Well, I think my book pretty much leads you to first try to get in touch with your purpose, identity, and connections in the world. Once you do that, I encourage you to reach towards financial independence based on who you are and what's important to you. There's a whole subchapter about ways of reaching financial independence and which fits you best. The reason why I'm talking about this third part about whether you think you may die sooner and not be able to enjoy your wealth versus dying older and worrying about running out of money is once you've figured out your unique path to financial independence, the real question is how fast are you going to run towards it? I thought I was going to live long so I could run towards it very fast, put my head to the grindstone, really, really make as much money as I could, get that in the stock market and allow it to compound, knowing that I'd have decades to enjoy it. Someone else may say, I'm not sure I'm going to live that long. For those kind of people, they probably don't want to save 50% of their income. Like I tried to do at the beginning of my career, maybe they want to save 10% of their income and then take 40% and put it towards a YOLO fund and really enjoy today. Do those things that are important to them. Have those experiences because there may not be a tomorrow. And one of two things will happen. They may be right and they may die young. And if they did, they really experienced and used their money and enjoyed themselves. And that's great. Let's say they're wrong and they live to a nice ripe old age. Well, they've already started working on the financial independence framework. Maybe they put away 10% of their money instead of 50% of their income. So they're not quite there yet. They might have to work till 60 or 65, but guess what? They've built YOLO into their lifestyle. They're doing what they enjoy doing. They probably won't mind working to the age of 60, 65. They're really enjoying life now and doing those things they want to do. And yet they'll still get to that point of financial independence eventually. It'll just take longer. So that's kind of the framework of the book. And I think if you can do those three steps, identify what you believe your purpose, identity, and connections are, the next step is then figure out a way towards financial independence. And then the last step is to decide how fast you need to get there, depending on what you think your future is going to be. And that's it. And I think that allows us the space to fill that time with things that give us a sense of joy or purpose. Yeah. Thank you for that. You know, there is one definitive in all of this. One common thread that we all share is that we all will die at some point. And so we have to make what is best for us in this lifetime that we have in the moments that we have. It's been an honor to have you on the show again, Doc, Jordan, both uh, relative to this topic, but also just in the financial world. It's been an honor to get to know you more. And I've always appreciated your storytelling and the way you approach the work. So thank you again for showing up and authentically sharing your story. And thank you for having me. It's a great conversation. Yeah. Doc G, also known as Jordan Grummet, his book, Taking Stock, available August 2nd, but available for pre-sale in July. You can also find him at the Earn and Invest podcast. And until next time, let's keep on adventuring. Yay. Oh, I'm so excited for this conversation. I have 10 key takeaways for you from this episode. Number one, Jordan is a study in delayed gratification. While being a doctor meant putting things on hold and putting in the time, it actually made it very easy for him to plan for the future. Hospice allowed him to see, number one, how fragile life is, 
and how that rocket may never launch. And two, sometimes it's just more fun to enjoy life now and recognize that maybe we don't need two marshmallows. As Jordan states, what I forgot is that the real joy is to live life. Number two, his hospice patients reflected often, I wish I would have taken that trip 10 years ago when I felt better. Jordan didn't like the idea of YOLO, you only live once, until he realized that you do only live once. He learned from his patients who were dying that there is this spectrum. YOLO might be on one end and delayed gratification on the other. Recognizing this softened his perspective on what YOLO meant for him. Number three, while the doctor role was his purpose, he didn't feel like he belonged in that culture. Instead of having the courage to cling on to a hospice, which spoke to him early in his career, he pursued all of the other elements of being a doctor, and it took him decades to come back to what he actually loved doing. Number four, we're dying from the day we're born, but we don't really like to talk about it. Death means that we have this finite amount of time to live out our purpose. Big, scary thoughts remind us of our mortality. And we focus less on, on the less important things. And for Jordan, that was actually money. Money and death are topics that we don't like to talk about, both topics that are intertwined and both critical to figuring out who do we want to be today. Number five, a terminal diagnosis forces us to face important questions such as, what am I going to regret that I didn't do? Or what am I going to want to achieve in the next three to six months of my life? We don't need a death sentence to have these conversations. Number six, the idea of writing your own eulogy is a great clarifier. He often gets the question, how do you know what your purpose is? These activities force us to clarify what is important, what is meaningful. Having children has been profoundly impactful in helping him think about his goals and legacy. When you have to explain to your children, why do you do what you do? Why do you have to go to work at night? Why can't you be at my game? These are great clarifiers to help you focus on life through a different lens. Number seven, we make the mistake of thinking we can commoditize time, meaning exchanging things for time. Time is static. It's unchangeable. It's uncontrollable, meaning time passes no matter what we do. We need to change the conversation from gaining or losing time rather to what do we choose to fill our time with. Number eight, how do we experience time? It's different at different times of our life. A six-year-old version of time is very different than 48-year-old version of time. You might also think of the example of setting your watch for two minutes and watching Netflix versus setting your watch for two minutes and sitting in a plank position. The same amount of time can feel very different based on what we're doing to fill the time. Ideally, we want to find things that bring us joy, meaning, and value to fill the majority of our time. Number nine, how can we view money as potential energy to erase the things that we don't want to do? As Jordan states, I would rather do something that I don't love to do to erase something that I absolutely hate doing. Number 10, money and time capital are probably the least important in the overall equation. You can parse it out into different sorts of capital. End of the day, if you can figure out the money part of the framework, you can use that to leverage the things that don't bring you joy. Time becomes less of an issue when you learn how to perceive it as abundance as opposed to scarcity. Taking Stock, I think, is a great book. It really helps connect purpose, identity, and who you are and what you want to be in life by also giving you a money framework and to make it more meaningful life. Once you figure out your pathway to financial independence, it also is really important to figure out how fast you want to get there. I found the book fascinating. I found it a very easy read. As you heard in my interview, I have quite a few highlights that I wanted to follow up with. And I just think it's worthwhile. If you are someone that finds is interested and curious that 
life is more than about your money or how much you make or what you are striving towards in your career. I think this is a very fascinating journey. The book does a great job also walking alongside several different hospice patients to give you different perspectives of as they're looking back, what does it look like? It doesn't always mean work less, retire early, have a ton of money. And I thought that was really fascinating. And I really encourage you. I left a five-star review. I'd encourage you to pick up the book if you can, give it a read, give it a rating, all those things that we do to help each other out. Until next time, I hope you take stock in what you want out of your life and have an adventurous week. If you found value from today's show, here are three easy ways you can support us. Subscribe to Ordinary Sherpa Podcast on the platform you're listening to. It lets the providers know that you're getting value from the show and want to be around when we release additional content. If you feel compelled, leave us a review. Two, find your friends, family, and others you think would enjoy this show and share this episode. Three, and most importantly, join the community of families interested in creating authentic experiences through simple adventures by going to OrdinarySherpa.com backslash community. We want to hear from you and create content that would benefit your family. Thanks for joining us on this journey as we help families connect through adventure.